Starnes and his family pulled up stakes again, and then they went further west to Sandy Creek, where they established the Sandy Creek Church of 16 members in November 1755. Within three years after that, Starnes had baptized something like 890 people in western North Carolina. From Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute, this is the Level Paths Podcast. My name is Chris Weigel, and we're glad you've taken some time to join us. Life goes by so fast that we rarely recognize who we are and how we got here. When we think of the community around us, it's fascinating when we learn about the generations who lived and worked right where we're living and working. And for that matter, have you ever been to church on Sundays and thought to yourself, how did this church get here? On this Level Paths podcast, Rex Howe and Matt Shamlin will introduce you to John Sparks, the author of the book, The Roots of Appalachian Christianity, The Life and Legacy of Shubal Starnes. The story of Shubal Starnes is extraordinary, and if you're a Baptist living in Appalachia, today's podcast will give you a lot of history and perspective. Here's Rex Howe. It's good to be back on the Level Paths podcast with my friend and partner, Matt Shamblin. Matt, how are you doing today? Hey, Rex, I'm doing well. It's good to be with you again and look forward to examining one of the most remarkable lives of Appalachian Christianity today. With us is author John Sparks. He's written several books on Appalachian Christianity, and today we're going to talk about the main character of his book, The Roots of Appalachian Christianity. The Life and Legacy of Shubal Stearns. Years ago, I was in seminary and learned about really two main streams of Baptist life in America. One represented by First Baptist Church of Charleston, South Carolina. This is a high church. This is very different than what we know of Baptist life in Appalachia. We're talking everything that is included in high church. But then there's another stream of Baptist in Appalachia represented by another church in North Carolina, in the Piedmont area of North Carolina, called the Sandy Creek Baptist. And the one who started the Sandy Creek Baptist Church was Shubal Stern. So, John, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for taking some time with us today and teaching us about Shubal Stearns. Well, thank you for inviting me. But I guess I'll have to get a little bit didactic with you. I'm pretty sure that the way that the old preacher himself pronounced his name, and certainly the way the descendants of his brothers have, is Starnes. They spell that S-T-A-R-N-E-S as well. So uh, we're dealing with a case of uh, change in pronunciation from uh, 200 years ago to now. And it has changed even in the most isolated places. For that, I'll give an example. Over to Great Crossings Church in Georgetown, Kentucky, one of the Pioneer Baptist churches, old Colonel Robert Johnson, one of the first settlers in Georgetown, was, I guess you'd call him the precentor at the church back in the days when there were very few hymnals, why they had to be lined out. And the precentor would chant a line, and the congregation would sing it in response. And some of the younger people would laugh at his old-fashioned pronunciation. Now, we're talking about before 1800, and they were laughing at it already. But they'd laugh about how he'd line out the hymn, Eternal are thy mercies, Lord. Eternal truth bounds thy word. And so eternal was tarnal. Well, Bertie County, North Carolina, was Barty County. 
there was a big, you might say, maybe north of England or Scottish Arsland. So tell us how a man who is from the northeast could come to Appalachia and make such an impact. So tell us a little bit about the history of Shubal Starnes. Well, the State Church of Connecticut, where he was born and raised, was a uh, sort of a semi-Presbyterian form of Puritanism. In Massachusetts, it was more congregational, but Connecticut was more sort of semi-Presbyterianized. Like most of his countrymen, he grew up in that faith. And it so happened that a minister of the Church of England by the name of George Whitfield began to take evangelistic tours in the colonies, ostensibly to support an orphanage in Georgia, which was classified as his living as a minister. But what he did was sort of to become the antecedent of Billy Graham. The movement that he worked in has come to be known as the Great Awakening. And it was what you might say a very intense period of spiritual awakening. It involved in more than one colony and certainly more than one church. But one of the side effects, you might say, in Connecticut and Massachusetts is that it started a separate congregationalist movement. With that, you got the idea that a minister who was simply inspired by the Holy Ghost should have the same rights to preach as one that was educated in uh, a theological or divinity school. A whole lot of the separate uh, congregationalists, and they were an illegal sect, although they were more or less tolerated because there were so many of them. You know, the tradition of the farmer preacher got started with them. Somebody who uh, just studied the Bible and felt a calling to preach would preach. They were criticized for uh, encouraging noise and confusion in their meetings and the way that one uh, early divinity-trained minister put it, that they let any ignorant man to preach that chose to. And another thing is they got so excited that they wound up using a distinctive sort of chant with their preaching, and it was at first called the New England Holy Tongue. You know, it was rather a musical sound. I can tell you from experience that if you preach like that, it's a lot easier on your voice if you sing a sermon rather than try to shout it out. And you don't sound as angry either. That's how it worked out. Starnes was converted under the ministry of Whitfield. I can't say that he was a direct convert of Whitfield. There were a few little mini Whitfields got started after him. The thing of it is they became sort of a field, you might call it, for the New England Baptist to work in. Therefore, in Connecticut, there was a small group of Baptists who came from England, and their pioneer preacher there was one named Valentine Whiteman. He was actually... Uh, the descendant of the last man ever burned at the stake for religious heresy in England. Valentine Whiteman got one separate congregational preacher by the name of Waitstill Palmer, or Wake Palmer, and baptized him, and he was ordained a Baptist minister. And in turn, Waitstill Palmer went to preaching, and uh, Shubal Starnes and his family came under Palmer's influence. They were immersed. And it wasn't too long after that that Palmer brought back another preacher 
from New London, Connecticut, by the name of Joshua Morse. And he and uh, Palmer ordained Shubal Starnes to the ministry. Starnes would have been about 47 or 48 years old, somewhere around the year uh, 1753-1754. When I was reading about what was happening as you were describing it, I pastored a congregation in rural Illinois that was, when it was founded, a Norwegian evangelical Lutheran congregation. And the way that congregation got started was a lay farmer-initiated revival against the conventicle act of the Norwegian church started in Norway. They preached in barns. The head of this movement, which later would be called the Haugian movement, was Hans Nielsen Hauge. So he was a lay preacher, not authorized by the state, go from farm to farm, preach. And there was a, an awakening of some kind. He was arrested multiple times. Now he's honored in the Lutheran church's calendar, but back then he wasn't. And it just so happened that the pastor who founded our church in Illinois, Peter Andreas Rasmussen, was converted in Bergen, Norway, as a result of one of these revival meetings under Hans Nielsen Hauge, and he felt burdened to come over to America and pastor one of the immigrant congregations in the Fox River Valley of Illinois. So, and it's about the late 1700s turning into the 1800s that all this was going on, and and it was in the mid-1800s that Rasmussen came over to the States. And so as I hear you talk about this, it's not just in New England, but this is going on in other places. I just find that super interesting. One of my questions as I was reading about Whitfield, you have a quote from Whitfield in your book where he's kind of self-critical a little bit of his own ministry. You recall what I'm talking about? I do. He's critical of his own preaching, his lack of pastoral care, and his discipleship, use a modern term. What would you have to say about that to the contemporary preacher in Appalachia? How would you talk about Whitfield's strengths and weaknesses? There are evangelists and there are pastors. I suppose that you could take it back to what it says in 1 Corinthians. Paul considered it his job to plant. He figured that Apollos watered the seeds he had planted. And so uh, Whitfield never stayed in one place long enough to water anything he planted. He would have been a hard man to get along with. In England, uh, his followers actually locked a rector of the Church of England into his pew, and Whitfield commandeered the pulpit. You know, the Methodists at that time were still in the Church of England, and Whitfield being a minister of the Church of England, why the rector there complained, and the first thing Whitfield did was to cry persecution. That's just too easy a dodge. But he lived and he learned. He said that there were times that he had been too bitter in his zeal. While I might agree with him, it's sort of a matter of thinking about the moat in somebody else's eye. Me quite well knowing how many beams I might have in my own eye. If Whitfield planted, Starnes was one of those who watered. I guess that he was a whole lot of a pastoral fellow. His brother-in-law, Daniel Marshall, was probably more of an evangelist, although uh, Starnes would come in after Marshall and, I guess you could say, organize what Marshall had begun to plant. But I'm getting ahead of myself here because about in 1754, Shubal Starnes got the impression that he needed to go to a great work in the West. 
Now, the West at that time was uh, the territory that's now West Virginia, southwestern Virginia, western North Carolina. That was the Wild West of the time. And so under this impression, after that he'd been ordained, and most of the people that went with him were family, brothers, brothers-in-law, sisters. Well, they left Holland and uh, they wound up settling in what's now the uh, eastern panhandle of West Virginia. They met up with Daniel Marshall. They started a little congregation on uh, Kakapin River, and that was territory where the regular Baptists had already done some preaching. But they were out in such a remote area, you know, there really wasn't anybody for them to preach to. They were sort of by themselves. But they uh, met up with a gentleman, a Marylander of Dutch ancestry by the name of Herman Husbands. So uh, Starnes and his family pulled up stakes again. They first went to Nutbush Creek, which was close to Grassy Creek, where that Husbands had a settlement. And then they uh, went further west to Sandy Creek, where they... Uh, established the Sandy Creek Church of 16 members, all of them Starnes or Starnes Relations, in November 1755. Within no time flat, Starnes and his brother-in-law, Daniel Marshall, as preachers, had more than what they knew how to contend with. Within three years after that, Starnes had baptized something like 890 people in western North Carolina. I guess that he was pretty well assured that he had been right, that he had a great work in the West. But, you know, there's another little subject that comes up that's relevant today, and that was uh, the intentions of Herman Husbands in inviting him to uh, Western North Carolina. Husbands had these apocalyptic ideas about how that the kingdom of God was going to be established in the new world. If you're so convinced of that, you can sometimes wind up trying to act in order to fulfill your own prophecies and cause more trouble than if you just kind of let God be God. Yeah. Herman Husbands, I had heard that name before your book, and he was a regulator, right? He was. The movement antedated his connection with it, but he became one of the premier spokesmen and certainly one of the premier agitators. For background, the Regulators' War in North Carolina was a pre-revolutionary movement made up of small farmers that were protesting the unfair tax practices of the county sheriffs in the rural counties. They could embezzle money really easily and never be called to account for it because the monies were difficult to trace. Even the royal governor of the place knew the sheriffs were embezzling, but he couldn't prove it. He lacked the means and the opportunity to hail them to justice And so, therefore, you had this protest about unfair tax practices. What's really ironic is a whole lot of the people in eastern North Carolina who later on supported the American Revolution were just as anti-regulator as they could be and actually fought against the regulators. But what I'm saying is this. If Herman Husbands was agitating that situation up more to see the fulfillment of what he thought was a prophecy or a revelation than he was out of concern for the farmers that were being unfairly taxed. Well, that was just trouble waiting to happen. And that's a lesson that we need to keep in mind in this day and time too. By now, you're probably getting the idea that John Sparks can tell story after story about early Appalachian Christianity and church history. And you're right. There's plenty more to go. And when we come back, we'll learn the definition of a hacker 
and lots more history and stories from author and historian John Sparks. Coming up on March 24, 2022, at Tri-State Bible College in South Point, Ohio, the Appalachian Ministry Conference, Fulfilling Your Ministry in a Post-COVID Appalachia. The keynote speaker is Dr. Tom Cheney, author of Church Revitalization in Rural America. This first-ever Appalachian Ministry Conference will focus on engaging Christian ministry in Appalachia for God's glory in a world impacted by COVID-19. The day starts at 9 a.m. and includes breakout sessions, lunch, Q&A sessions, Appalachian storytelling, and of course, you'll hear from keynote speaker Dr. Tom Cheney, Rex Howe from Tri-State Bible College, and Matt Shamlin from the Appalachian Ministry Institute. Again, the Appalachian Ministry Conference is March 24, 2022 at Tri-State Bible College in South Point, Ohio. To register, visit tsbc.edu and click on Apply Now or call 740-377-2520. So we have Shubal Starnes moving from Connecticut, converted in some way under the ministry of Whitfield from the first great awakening, moving to what is now West Virginia, starting a congregation there, then moving into the Piedmont area of North Carolina yes, with 16 members. But in a very short amount of time, he's pastoring a church that's got over 600 members and making a massive impact. So can you describe to us what his ministry looked like there? in the Piedmont area of North Carolina? Well, I would just imagine that the New England Holy Tone was something that few, if any, people were familiar with. So you mentioned in your book the Welsh term, Hoel, and then the chanting or barking. Is this where we're moving toward with this New England Holy Tongue? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. What Morgan Edwards said, who was the first historian to write anything about Shubelstarns, that all of the uh, separate preachers copied Shubal Starnes in tones of voice and actions of body, some few exceeding. That's how he put it when he was writing in 1772. But, well, say what you will about it, he was able to make a really striking impression on his hearers. He could bring them to tears, grown tough men that, that weren't accustomed to crying about anything. He could bring them to tears. His eyes, I can't say exactly what about his eyes was so striking because we do not have any pictures of him, but we've got recorded accounts. One young minister by the name of Tidens Lane, who was raised up to the ministry under him, gave an account to Morgan Edwards of the time he first met Starnes. And Starnes was preaching over on Yadkin River at that time, and it was close to where that Lane lived, and he'd heard him, and he said that he wanted to go uh, see him said that when he got there, it was all an outside meeting, and there was uh, an elderly man sitting under a peach tree with a book in his hand, said that was Starnes, and that he looked up and fixed his eye on him. He felt like being charmed by the rattlesnake, the way he put it. He thought to himself that, all right, I'll just go up and introduce myself and shake hands with the preacher, and that'll fix whatever it is that's bothering me, but it didn't. And so he found when Starnes began to preach that he couldn't even stand up. 
that he he wound up sinking to the ground. Now, his brother Dutton Lane had something even more dramatic. After he heard Starnes preach, he was out hunting and he thought the devil had come after him. And he ran all the way back to Titans Lane's, his brother's cabin, and just passed out exhausted on the floor, thinking that he had just narrowly escaped the clutches of old Scratch himself. So the way I figure it, Starnes was able to perhaps paint very vivid word pictures of what he was trying to preach about, and that perhaps the musical chant that he used in his form of delivery, there's any number of reasons. You know, some people would just say, no, you don't need to call it that. It's the power and demonstration of the Holy Ghost. And there's some people that still think that you can't preach any other way besides that. So growing up in Appalachia, at least in North Central Appalachia, we talk about preachers who hack. There is a, uh, a meter to it. Are we talking about the same thing? Yes, although now what they refer to as the hack may actually be what Morgan Edwards describes as actually exceeding what Starnes did. The way the hack came about is this. If you are trying to preach without a microphone in an open area, and I have done this under a tent, you've got to use your diaphragm a whole lot. And so at the end of a sentence, if your diaphragm's still going, and you get that, that last word, what comes out is like that. It just happens naturally. But now uh, I have known cases of where people exaggerated it. I wonder if Philip Mulkey, who was another Starnes convert, didn't do that. Now, the way uh, Morgan Edwards described him was that he'd heard the actor David Garrick had learned his pronunciation of the letter O from... Uh, a Dr. Fordyce, but uh, he said either one of those men could learn off Philip Mulkey how to put any kind of emotion in the letter O. And, you know, you do hear maybe not so common now as it was when I was growing up and before that, but uh, preachers uh, starting out a line of text with, oh, you know, like that. Was that more of the type of preaching that Starnes did more of like what you just demonstrated more melodious than the hack that we see today. I suspect that it was. I suspect okay. it was more musical. If you get somebody with a uh, high voice, it sort of sounds like a whine. And if you get somebody with a deep voice, it's sort of a booming effect. Either way, it can put goosebumps down your back. And I just wonder if that's kind of what happened with Starnes' preaching. It's definitely got more of a haunting tone, doesn't it? It does. As we think about Starnes, this is a man I didn't realize that was converted or baptized at 47 years old. He's not a young, young man as he goes to the Piedmont area. He had this incredible ministry that God clearly blessed as we see many people converted and then into uh, church planting. I mean, there are multiple churches which ultimately developed in two major streams of Baptist life from Sandy Creek and the other from the Charleston churches. So yes. can you tell us a little bit about the difference between the Sandy Creek Baptist and the Charleston Baptist? I once had the honor back in 2007 of doing a character portrayal of Titans Lane in the old Charleston First Baptist Church. I came there asking, I was looking for Brother Oliver Hart and asking, you know, where he was because I needed to explain 
some things to him. The regular Baptists insisted on more uh, formal theological training. Uh, it was nice to know Latin. A whole lot of the minutes of the Philadelphia Association, which is, uh, I suppose, the first regular Baptist association in America, they use Latin quotes sometimes, and you expect that there's learned people talking to learned people. I guess that the best way that I could describe the difference, two different things, I'll go through both of them. When the regular Baptists met the separates, there was a uh, church there on the Potomac, close to uh, the coastline there of Virginia. Daniel Marshall and his wife joined and worshipped there for a little bit. Some of the congregation were critical of their excesses, but the pastor there said if he had such warm-hearted Christians in his church that he wouldn't take gold for it. Anyway, after that, they all moved to North Carolina, and it turned out that there was a settlement of New Jersey people. And, of course, they called themselves the Jersey Settlement. They came to the Yadkin River, and uh, there was enough regular Baptists there together, a regular Baptist church. And there was a preacher from Rhode Island named John Gano. Now, he preached all over the country as a regular Baptist preacher and finally died in Kentucky, and he's buried at Frankfurt. But he was a uh, revolutionary chaplain, a missionary that went more miles, I guess, than most of us will ever see. But they called him to the pastorship of the Jersey Church there. So he heard about the separates. He wanted to go over and see him, and he met Starnes. Well, Starnes wanted Gano to preach. Gano did, using the more formal regular Baptist style, although I'm sure he had plenty of strength of voice himself. But some of Starn's younger preachers were uh, so chagrined when they heard him and the way he could quote scripture and whatnot that they thought, well, we'll never be able to preach again after that. But they did. And Gano got along with them, although his term for it was they were rather immethodical. And they were. Because we know that Baptist churches are congregational in polity. Paul Starnes, he grew up with about 11 younger brothers and sisters. He was the boss, like a whole lot of oldest sons are. And he brought that into his ministry too. Churches didn't give advice. Associations issued orders. And that has come down in traditional Appalachian Baptist churches too. They've got a constitution the regular Baptists gave them, but there's very few that live up to it. It's more separate tradition than what is actually said in the Articles of the Constitution. Now, uh, I don't know exactly what the problem was, but there was a preacher that he was actually associated with the regular Baptists first, and he joined Starnes in his movement. And his name was John Newton. Not the same John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. But, and for some reason, Shubal Starnes did not want John Newton ordained. And actually, Starnes was very conservative about ordaining preachers. He wouldn't hardly do it unless that there was a new church came up and needed a pastor. Although uh, Philip Mulkey got ordained pretty quick. I don't really know how to explain that. <laughs> but uh, Newton's congregation, the congregation he was in was became offended at Starnes. So what they did was they just sent south to uh, Charleston and asked Oliver Hart, who was the pastor there, 
to uh, come up and help ordain. He brought another preacher with him, Hart did, and they ordained John Newton. That shouldn't have caused any trouble whatsoever, but it did. He ordained John Newton and somebody else at the same time. And whenever that the other person whose name escapes me right now made an apology to the association, Starnes just forgave him, recognized his ordination. John Newton didn't think he'd done anything wrong. He stood on principle. And so he wound up being the one in disfavor. The main difference, you've got, uh, you know, more or less a uh, common school educated ministry in the separate Baptist. And you've got almost that semi-Presbyterian polity that you found in both the churches, not only the Connecticut State Church, but also actually the old General Baptists who were in New England that Valentine Whiteman originally belonged to. That's a helpful distinction, and I want to make sure we emphasize that. The Baptist churches in Appalachia don't have the same origin as do the Baptist churches that are more formal outside of Appalachia. And the major influences are drastically different. One, more influenced by a different type of polity, a different type of mindset, a different type of preaching. And the other, extremely influenced by separatists in every aspect of the word, especially in attitude, where we have even an organization that's set up to tell the Baptists what to do. And as you said, in their constitution, it says one thing, and in their actions, it's lived out something very, very different. And that's something that ultimately at the end of Starnes's life that proved to be difficult, wasn't it? That his influence over the Sandy Creek Baptist was waning. Is that correct? I would say so. The regulators war was going in full force at that time. Baptist preachers, especially separate Baptist preachers that had come north to Virginia, like Samuel Harris made a whole lot of converts in the uh, Tidewater area of Virginia, thus began a dramatic revival there. A lot of their preachers in Virginia were jailed for uh, holding unlawful meetings. The kicker of it is that the regular Baptists could go to a Virginia County Court and produce their credentials and get a license to preach in that county as a dissenter. And the separates not having any education, they couldn't do that. And so they got a fight going about that. Some of them was standing on principle that I've got a general license by King Jesus. I don't need no court license to preach. So they fought over that. Isn't it interesting when we think about Christianity in America, many would not recognize that the whole idea of separation in church and state came as a Baptist idea, a separate Sandy Creek Baptist idea, and the idea that a state has any right whatsoever to say when a preacher cannot preach is in total rejected to the very core and even in the history of separate Baptists. So when we think about Shubal Starnes, what would you say are some of the major lasting influences of his ministry today? Well, I'd like to speak of a few good things and one bad thing. Okay. All right. Let's go with the good things first. He really had a zeal and a joy in what he did. I think that the uh, old man was happy in his religion. He was enthusiastic. A lot of people would say they saw the devil after that he preached, 
but maybe that was because he made things so vivid to them about what he was preaching about. Even his tendency to be the oldest brother, be bossy, I think even that was based on the fact that he cared, and that was just the way he had been conditioned to care, taking care of a bunch of younger people, and he might have thought of his entire flock as youngins. So all that's a good thing. It's also a good thing that he had the principle that a person did not necessarily need formal training to have a call of God to be a preacher. Now let's get to the bad thing, all right? That thought's got a brother. And the brother to that thought is this, that you're better off without an education than you are with an education. Now we talked about some preachers exceeding starns in uh, tone of voice and actions of body but some of his later descendants have exceeded him in attitude as well. Morgan Edwards said that Starnes didn't have very much formal learning, but he really tried to acquaint himself with books. Well, we've got a situation now, you know, God knows what's going to be the end of these things, but where that education is a thing to mistrust nowadays. That got started in the Piedmont of North Carolina too. And that is one thing that has gone to excess. John, that's helpful insight because Tri-State Bible College, we are really a school that exists in the separatist tradition. Now, imagine what I've just said. You have a school that exists in the separatist tradition and the tradition itself rejects the idea of formal education. Originally, it was that formal education, while good, might not be necessary. It evolved from that into formal education isn't good, and it evolved from that to where that I've heard preachers get up in the stand and take a quotation out of the Psalms, which actually is talking about food, but it says in there, open thy mouth and I will fill it. They twist that around that the Lord's going to fill their mouth with words, and I have heard some pretty foolish things come out of people who claim that the Lord had filled up their mouth. That's right. John, this has been wonderful. It's incredible to listen to you talk about Separatist Baptist and to hear name after name after name of these people who, apart from historians like yourself, would have been forgotten. And so I want to say thank you for writing books like this one on Shubal Starnes, like the book on Raccoon John Smith. What a, an appropriate name for a preacher in Appalachia, Raccoon John Smith. I love that and have thoroughly enjoyed this time talking with you. And so I want to say thank you for spending this time with us, and thank you for giving us this quick education on Shubal Starnes. Well, it's uh, been a pleasure to uh, be in your company today, and I thank you again for inviting me. And brother, as an Appalachian born and raised, and as someone who's gone out and come back, and someone who was a preacher boy and then got some education. I have really enjoyed reading your book. I'm just learning more about my roots and where I came from, and you've been a big help to me. So thank you so much. Well, that makes me feel humble for you to say that. I'm glad that I was able to be a help. Well, I grew up in the heart of Appalachia, and I grew up in a Baptist church. This past 30 minutes with Rex, Matt, and John Sparks has taught me so many things I didn't know about the history of the Baptist Church and Shubal Starnes in Appalachia. You can read more about Shubal Starnes in John's book. 
The title is The Roots of Appalachian Christianity, The Life and Legacy of Schubel Starnes. You can find it on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. And if you'd like to reach out to Rex Howe at Tri-State Bible College, you can send him an email at rex.howe at tsbc.edu. And Matt Shamlin can be reached at the Appalachian Ministry Institute by email at matt.shamlin at tsbc.edu. On the next Level Paths podcast. COVID in many ways hit the fast forward button for us on addressing some issues. It brought some things to the forefront that had to be wrestled with and prayed through and, and dealt with. The Level Paths Podcast is an outreach of Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute.